Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. And uh, we are going to have an election within just a few days. So uh, the parties are busy spending our money on all kinds of campaigns that uh, don't really say anything of intelligence. So to say a little bit about the election, uh, the... Um, it seems that uh, Israel may anyway be headed to another political stalemate next month and will have elections again, like in April next year. So if you voted one way this time, you'll get another chance at the time at that time to reconsider your vote and make a greater impact on the overall results. Perhaps, hopefully, by then, the range of political party options, especially their leaders, will be better and broader. Now, it's interesting. There are all kind of like two dozen different parties. Some are super fringe parties that will have ballot slips on November 1st. So uh, wasting your vote on a party that has absolutely no chance of getting into the Knesset is really silly. Those these splinter groups are really really not normal, and they shouldn't be taken seriously. And they're too tiny to have any chance whatsoever of being elected to the Knesset. Now the Knesset, uh, just to bring the uh, listeners up to speed, um, the current electoral threshold, the minimum for gaining Knesset representation is 3.25% of all the valid votes. In practice, this means that a party that fails to gain votes equivalent to about four Knesset seats, that's what 3.25% is, if they don't get that number, they are wiped off the political map. And it, it, it strips the voters of the right to vote their conscience in a straightforward manner. So it reduces election day to tactical play instead of being a celebration of democracy in action. And it's a dispiriting approach to Zionist Jewish and Jewish political commitment. The, um, the forget the threshold and be a strategic and principled voter. That's what the voters should think about. What they should do is vote their conscience, even if that means that your ballot goes to waste. Voting in an upright fashion, voting your conscience, is a healthy and satisfying slant on political engagement. Selecting the political party and the political leader that most closely represent your worldview without reference to the latest polls the is corrective to the cynicism that almost all Israelis feel about the political system. The, um, the, the in my estimation, and I uh, obviously I've spoken to a lot to a lot of uh, Americans about this. In America, you vote for a local representative, 
You know who he is. You know where his office is. You can speak with him. And he, the local representative, has to be popular among the local people. So he has to be responsive to them. Uh, here in Israel, you do not vote for an individual. You vote for a party list. Some people have saw, said it's the biggest bargain in history. You could have up to 120 names on the list because that's the number of seats in the Knesset. And with your, with your one vote, you get 120 uh, um, candidates that you're pushing forward. So uh, almost all the various party leaders are going around saying, vote for me, not so much because of what I can do for you, but I'm better than the other guys, and we should try to block the other guys. So uh, this, is, this is a bad system. It completely ignores the critical diplomatic, defense, economic, and social issues at hand. Essentially, Israel is gutted of any serious ideological armament. It reduces our serial election campaigns. We're coming up to the fifth one. It's just another round of um, wasting your vote. It is a bad approach to determining Israel's future. By the way, you often heard, it's often heard that you shouldn't waste your vote uh, for a certain political party because it may not overcome the threshold of 3.25%. But that is not a good argument. It strips voters of their right to vote their conscience in a straightforward manner. That, that's important. You say, do I vote for this party because... It, uh, I'm going to waste my vote. It's not going to pass the uh, th threshold, even though I agree with the policy of that party, but I won't vote for it because the, all the uh, polls taken indicate that my party won't get in, and therefore I'll waste my vote. So I have to compromise myself and vote for something I, I don't totally agree with. Well, first of all, you never totally agree with anything that a party stands for, if it stands for anything. But parties have a platform, some items, items of which you agree with and some you simply don't agree with. That's only natural. People should not be put off by the pollsters. As I said a moment ago, let's say you, you, um, you have a, a, a party that espouses principles that you agree with, but you're told by the posters that that party is not going to pass the threshold, not going to get anybody into the Knesset. So therefore, you turn away from voting according to your principles and you search for the next best thing. That is really insulting to the, uh, to the voters. One of the more intelligent commentators uh, said that... Uh, I'm suggesting that Arab Israelis who are impressed by the bravery of Mansur Abbas, uh, who uh, belonged to an Arab party called Ram, who joined the Israeli government for the first time, an Arab party had done so, and he made achievements in government and did things for the Arab population. So Arabs should vote for Ram, this party, as a matter of principle. 
They should not be deterred by doubts that his party can surmount the 3.75% threshold, nor should they be threatened by radicals in a sector for identifying with this party that was in the uh, Israeli Knesset. And that's as far as the Arabs are concerned. But I am suggesting, for example, the right wing on the religious Zionist Israelis who consider Ayelet Shaked, who, uh, who was in the government before, was the justice minister, if you consider her to be an honest, effective, and conservative leader, should vote for, uh, as a matter of principle, for the party that she belongs to, called Baid Yehudi, the Jewish home. People should not be daunted by threshold uncertainties, nor frighted, frightened by angry accusation or disloyal of disloyalty to the fate of the Tanyahu bloc. If enough people in this sector vote their conscience and use their best ideological judgment, then by Yehudi may be elected successfully to the Knesset. You can take any party, uh, and I'm, I'm touching upon all the various sides of politics. There's a woman named Meirav Michaeli. She, uh, she has a certain version of the Labour Party, and each of the parties have clear enough identity, political history, and thousands of votes really behind it to make it a passable choice. So, unfortunately, Israeli voters face another election in a convoluted Israeli political system where negative campaigning and personal animosities are at a peak. Most politicians are simply lying instead of tackling real issues with real solutions. They are selling tactical calculations instead of purposeful policies. They tell Israelis to vote, in other words, to sidetrack their enemies. They're not mostly saying, vote for me. They're saying, don't vote for the other guy. And it could well be if worse comes to worse, there'll be another election shortly. And that, and by the way, the elections cost a fortune. The parties get money from our tax money to run their campaigns where the money could go much better places in the Israeli society. Money is needed for all kinds of things. The money for political parties is considered by many, including myself, is a terrible waste. Let the parties go out, and if they have enough supporters who want to put their money in their campaign, let them do so. If they don't have enough supporters who are willing to pay for their campaign, they shouldn't be running for office. So, by the way, when I use the expression running for office, I'm reminded of the fact that in America, and Israel's model on America in that sense, you run for office. And uh, in England, the expression uses stand. You stand for office. So it turns out, I think, that it's very interesting. Standing means you're in one place. Running means you're all over the place, so nobody really knows what you stand for. Uh, but that's my own interpretation of Israeli politics. Incidentally, since I'm talking about the elections, 
I'm going to say a few more words. Political arguments are part of the Israeli experience. It's hard to keep up with what's really happening because we're expecting, we're having a fifth round of elections in less than four years. That's on November 1st. There's not much that is agreed on by all. Perhaps the one subject Israeli Jews do not dispute is the status of Jerusalem as the Jewish capital. Hundreds of thousands flocked to the holy city during the holiday of the Sukkot last week. Some came as pilgrims for the traditional priestly blessing at the Western Wall. Others came as tourists for the cultural activities, colorful parades, and to see sights and sights and sounds that cannot be seen anywhere else. By the way, the majority of Israelis were united in their condemnation this week of Australia repealing recognition of even West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Israel has a big problem with Australia now. Israel has at least as much right to determine its own capital as Australia has. Now, uh, it's interesting. If you ask people around the world, uh, what's the capital of Israel? I would think a majority know that it's Jerusalem. Ask people around the world, what's the capital of uh, Australia? I think that you would have a hard time finding many people that didn't that know that it's Canberra. Jerusalem was conquered by King David 3,000 years ago. It's the ancient and only capital city as far as Jews are concerned. It's the Jewish capital. It's in the direction of Jerusalem that Jews pray three times a day. Today, it houses Israel's parliament, the Knesset, the parliament for which Israelis vote in seemingly never-ending election cycles. It houses the Supreme Court, which itself features prominently in electioneering on both the left and right. It has the Prime Minister's residence, about a 10-minute walk from where I live. Uh, and uh, the, it's interesting, the current Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, uh, and his wife have found temporary housing because the main building is being re reno renovated for whoever will be the next prime minister. Jerusalem also houses the president's residence where Isaac Herzog is doing his best not only heal internal rifts but to pick up the diplomatic slack. It will also fall to Herzog after the elections to appoint the party leader with the best prospects of forming a ruling coalition. That's really the main thing, that the pre most important thing that the president of Israel does. Again, as I mentioned previously, a lot of our politicians, instead of saying why they should vote for them, they tell us why we shouldn't vote for the other guy. The... Uh, there, there is the electioneering this year is dominated by a theme for supporters of, of, of BB and another one that goes around saying just not BB in Hebrew, Raklo BB. It's not an ideology, it's an obsession. Netanyahu is far from perfect, 
for telling voters whom they should not vote for rather than giving them a positive reason to cast for their ballots is not a democratic blessing. That These are the facts on the ground. By the way, without a really clearly defined belief, many of the members of Knesset, even after elected on one party ticket, they hop to other parties seeking the best opportunities in the place they can temporarily call home. Many parties are defined by the person who leads them. People talk of voting for Bibi, Lapid, Gans, Ben Beer, Smutrich, Lieberman, and so on. Most people, when they vote for a party, cannot name the top name, 10 names on the list of that party. They, mo- they might know the first name and then maybe two or three names afterwards, but when you vote here in Israel with your one ballot, you get 120 names. To, uh, interesting. Given the frequency with which the parties changes their names, it's hard to keep up with it. The, uh, by the way, Ayala Shaked, uh, it's easier to remember her name than whatever party she's being lead, she's leading. She's running on a party now, which is not the party to, that she was elected on in the last time. So, the uh, it's really interesting. The the the, the People say that Israel's a democracy, but if you really look into details, it, it it's a democracy in the sense democracy in the sense you can vote, but you really don't know what you're getting when you vote. The truth of the matter is, it's a safe bet that people everywhere, not just in Israel, people worry about the same basic needs as they did even before the birth of democracy. What people want is safety, food, and shelter. And no politician anywhere is going to mount a campaign against education and health care. Nor should a wise politician anywhere reject the need for environmental protection. These are things that should be beyond politics. But for some strange reason, protecting the environment has been taken over by the left in most countries. Despite the political uncertainty, Israel is better off than many Western countries. The COVID vaccination rollout under Netanyahu has helped keep the coronavirus pandemic under control. The economy has bounced back. The main focus of the discussions on energy concentrate on the wisdom, handling, and legitimacy of a deal that was just made with Lebanon. But Israel is not expecting the same crisis as elsewhere following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's rising inflation and soaring house prices, but the currency remains strong, and that's important. A quick look at Lebanon suffices to know that our neighbor's grass is not always greener. Changing the electoral system itself should be a priority. The challenge is not only to create a coalition, but to maintain it. Political science is an art. 
Politicians should remember these are elections, not a war about ratings. There are serious real life and death issues at stake. Two weeks is a very long time in Israeli politics, especially when they come after an election. It's impossible to make predictions. So we'll see what's going to be. Uh, never a dull moment here in Israel. What happened uh, last week, uh, by an action taken by the Australian government, the uh, Australian government decided to uh, remove its recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now, it's been noted that these are extremely dangerous times in human history. We are experiencing the most challenging threats in international community since World War II. There are a lot of crises. There's a Russian war on Ukraine, the Iran's nuclear buildup, which is not going to be stopped by the United States, also Iran's terror campaign throughout the Middle East and beyond. Of course, there was the COVID pandemic. So, and there are natural disasters that happen all the time. So these are uh, rough times. Now, world governments today contemplate how to prevent Russia from deploying its nuclear arm arsenal in Europe. They're trying to stabilize the economy in Europe and the United States. There's runaway inflation, in particular in the United States and increased energy prices. The cost of gas, uh, petrol, that is, in the United States, is really unbelievable. And uh, there's also the um, expansionist move by China, uh, which is uh, making uh, the Taiwan a dangerous area now. Now, amid all of this, the Australian government took the time and took the effort to revoke its recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now, the Australian government is, in my estimation, out of touch with what's really happening in the Middle East. Now, interestingly enough, by um, re removing its recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, this is counter to the trend of Arab countries and Israeli peace and normalization processes like this Abraham Accords. Now, it could be that the decision by the Australian government was made out of ignorance, or it may be due Palestinian pressure. However, no matter how you look at it or what caused it, it simply makes no sense. Jerusalem has been the Jewish capital since established by King David more than 3,000 years ago. It has only been the capital for the Jewish people, None, no one else. There have been many occupiers since the Jews were thrown out 2,000 years ago. No one has ever made Jerusalem its capital. Now, the Palestinians themselves assumed their name as Palestinians only after the Jews regained their independence in 1948 
and they never ever showed any attachment to any part of Jerusalem, including East Jerusalem, which was occupied by Jordan after the 1948 war until 1967 when Jordan was kicked out by the Israelis. The Oslo Accords of 1993 introduced many major concessions as peace offerings by the Israelis to the Palestinians, including allowing the creation of a Palestinian state, something which has never existed in history. Now, this was not to be as the Palestinians consistently refused to acknowledge Israel's right to exist up to this very moment and have continued daily terror attacks on Israel, in particular in the last month. There were a lot of terror attacks. It is specifically because of the Palestinian intransigence that the United States realized that Palestinians could not be given veto power on Israel's security, stability, and future. Now, after the recognition by the United States of Jerusalem as Israel's capital under the Trump administration, and the the embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it's about a mile away from where I live, Many many countries followed suit, including Australia. This was an important decision showing an understanding of history and the political reality of the Middle East today, and also by Australia recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, it, it also manifested the warm relations between Australia and Israel, because they are both essentially Western democracies bound by common values and by common interests. Now, Australia, like Israel and like other democracies, faces threats from aggressive non-democratic powers. Just as there were these two countries, Israel and Australia, were gearing up for close cooperation in the areas of uh, high-tech, food security, water availability, and defense technologies, including cyber and missile defense, Israel received what amounts to a slap in the face by this unfriendly act by Australia of taking away its recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. I do not understand, and I I don't think anybody understands the purpose of this. It does not relate to any of Australia's interests. Still, it definitely hurts Israel's interests by encouraging and emboldening the Palestinians and other actors to stop up their terror. Appeasement has never led to peace and only hardened any aggressor's resolve. Now, it's not too late for the Australian government to correct its error. I don't know whether it has to do with a changing government, but it's immaterial. The, the Australia should adhere to the universal conduct of respecting the right 
of any sovereign nation to decide what its capital is. To be sure, the fate of Jerusalem will not be determined by, by all these kind of decisions like that made by the Australian government. However, it may well affect the bilateral relations between Australia and Jerusalem. So this is, this is a fact. It came as a surprise, and uh, it's an unpleasant surprise, and we'll see how the situation develops between Israel and Australia. Since I mentioned the Palestinian Authority, I want to say, say something about what the chairman, Mahmoud Abbas, did. Uh, about three weeks ago, he spoke at the UN. He addressed the UN General Assembly in New York, and he devoted his time at the podium at the UN to excoriating the Jewish state in no uncertain terms. He accused Israel of perpetrating massacres against Palestinians, carrying out assaults on Islamic religious shrines, and he further claimed that Israel does not believe in peace. Abbas likened the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 to the looting of Palestinian resources and demanded the implementation of the 1947 UN Partition Plan, as well as flooding Israel with millions of so-called Palestinian refugees. And then, in yet another move that only a true uh, a person <laughs> who's honest to his beliefs could make, Abbas declared that the Palestinians will formally ask the International Criminal Court to investigate the crimes and massacres committed by Israel. Now, the uh, lest you think that's only Israel's right wing that does not look kindly on the Palestinian Authority, the uh, Interesting, you might consider the opinion of Nasser al-Kidwa, who is the Palestinian Authority, Authority's foreign minister for foreign affairs. Al-Kidwa was, was arch-terrorist Yasser Arafat's nephew, grew disenchanted with the Palestinian Authority last year to the point that he went to France for self-imposed exile. Then he came back. He's now in Gaza, and he told a French uh, news um, media two weeks ago that he would not feel safe returning to Judea and Samaria because Abbas's Palestinian authority is totalitarian. According to him, Abbas is ruling by decree and decrees that are ridiculous. He also lamented the fact that thanks to Abbas, the Palestinian Authority's institution were destroyed by design. Now it's true, indeed, that under the leadership of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority has willfully continued its program of pay-for-slay which issues annual rewards to Palestinian terrorists and their families for attacking, wounding, and murdering innocent Jews. 
a Palestinian media, media watch, it's an Israeli organization, revealed in a report published in April that the Palestinian Authority dispersed the equivalent of $270 million in 2021 to terrorists and their relatives. In per capita terms, the Palestinian uh, Media Watch noticed the Palestinian Authority spends 33.34 times more on paying terrorists than it does on health services and 10.86 times more than it pays for youth education. In other words, a huge amount of money, which the Palestinian Authority gets from other places, is spent to pay the family of terrorists. Also, as, as, that, as if that weren't enough, Abbas also has a habit of putting his mouth where his money is. On September 30th, a journalist named Jack Curry tweeted audio and text from a phone call made by a boss in which he expressed hope that Allah would curse Israeli soldiers and help us to get rid of them. Now, too many people in Israel and abroad fail to see the Palestinian Authority for what it truly is. Instead of coddling Abbas and his cronies and heaping compliments upon his autocratic and brutal regime, Israel should drop the kid gloves and treat it accordingly. Far from being an asset or helping to make peace, the Palestinian Authority is an enemy, a hostile entity that does everything in its power to besmirch Israel every possibility it has, like in the UN, it incites violence and terrorism and demonizes Jews and fakes Jewish history while also trying to seize control over still more Jewish land in Judea and Samaria. Simply put, it is long overdue for Israel and its leaders to stop ignoring reality and they should stop wishful thinking about the Palestinian Authority, if only because the facts speak so, speak so loudly for themselves. The Unfortunately, the chances of that happening are slim. It, unfortunately, our leadership doesn't take its proper steps to put the Palestinian Authority in its place and let the world know more about the Palestinian Authority. I put a little bit, if not a lot, of the blame on our own leadership. They know the truth, and they should let make the world be aware of that truth. I want to close this segment of my program with several items. They're not related, but uh, I think that they're really under the headlines, and people may find that they're novel, if they're not interesting. For example, the, uh, the ability to travel is uh, based upon having a passport, but not all passports are equal. Some open more doors than others to travel around the world. 
The most powerful passports are those that offer greater freedom to enter the most countries without additional entry requirements, such as visas. So the, pa uh, the uh, passport, something which you generally get from your government, and it's good for 10 years, is really a key to traveling. Now, every year, the list of the most powerful passports in the world is released. In other words, there are different factors that affect the freedom to travel and the strength of a passport. Now, more than 100 countries participate in a sort of global competition, a classification based on data from the International Air Transport Association. According to the latest report, the something called the the Henley Henley Passport Index (HPI), which ranks passports based on the number of destinations their holders can access without a prior visa. A Japanese passport, for example, opens more doors than any other passport in the world. Now, the Passport Index, HPI, also raised the value of world passports in relation to whether they allow the holder to visit many countries with the following entry criteria. A passport, a visa on arrival, electronic travel authorization, online visa waiver, uh, these are important criteria for how you can travel. Based on these criteria, the list of the most powerful passport, for passports are the following. Japan has the top ranking, ranking that has 193 visa-free or visa-on-arrival destinations. After that is Singapore and South Korea, which tied for second place with 192 visa-free de destinations. The top, Japan, had 193. The, the uh, number two has 192. The passports of Spain and Germany are tied for third place with 190 destinations to travel to other countries. Both are the most powerful European passports in the world. Fourth place is shared by Finland, Italy, and Luxembourg. They have 189 countries they can enter. Also in Europe, Austria, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Sweden take fifth place with 188 countries. In other words, the top, I said, is 193. If you have 188 countries you can enter, that's the fifth place. Now, after that are France, Ireland, Portugal, and the United Kingdom. All of them are in sixth place with 187 visa-free entry destinations. The, U the U.S. passport is the seventh in the world, tied with Belgium, New Zealand, Norway, and Switzerland. They have 186 visa-free destinations. Ukraine rose to 35th place 
because the European U Union gave Ukrainian citizens the right to live and work in the European Union for up to three years. The Ukrainian passport now is 144 destination. And what are the weakest passports? Well, the bottom of the list is Yemen, Pakistan, Syria, but only they have less than 40 destinations. Just something of interest. I'll be back. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. One minute of Torah. Noah, the name and hero of our Torah portion this week. The beautiful world that God created had become much too corrupt by the evil ways of man, and so God decided he would cleanse it all with a gigantic flood and start anew. To spare the righteous Noah and his family, God instructed him to build an ark of refuge from the dangerous waters outside. Fascinating narrative, yet the Torah is not a historical storybook, but an eternal guidebook for life full of lessons for all of us all the time. Well, it's 2022, and my, are there floods around us. So much confusion, which, by the way, shares the root word of flood in Hebrew. Distractions and troubles threatening to drown us. What can we do to survive? The answer is in God's words, come into the Teva. In Hebrew, the word Teva means both ark as well as word. Come into the words of Torah and prayer, says God, and you will be safe from the turbulence around you. And then, when it's time to come out of the ark, or words, we will be sufficiently focused to view all through godly lenses, understanding there is a higher intent behind the chaos. Strengthened and calmed, we can now safely carry out our mission of revealing the godliness in all aspects of creation. With your Ayn of Torah, this is Chavai Zekovich. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hi, I want to start this segment of the program with a few words about uh, politics in Europe, something which I never really talk about. Perhaps in the years that I've been broadcasting, I may have talked about European politics once or twice, but only in the sense that uh, what's happening in Europe can affect the Jews. So I want to say a few words about the fact that the um, Italians have now elected a woman named Georgia Maloney to be the prime minister. So she is going to be a far-right leader, and she's about to be sworn in as the country's next prime minister. And understandably, many are apprehensive about the rise of the Italian populist right. The word right generally strikes fear in Jews, but the right wing in politics has been often anti-Semitic, but so has the left wing. For some reason or other, Jews are more worried about a right wing government. Um, the, the, um, the woman who was elected belongs to a party known as the Fratelli d'Italia, which means the Brothers of Italy. It's not seen as championing Western freedoms. Instead, its politics can bring back memories of a much darker period in European history. Now, Mark Regev is a, a former advisor to the prime minister, and uh, he wrote an article about this election in Italy. And I want to uh, extract a few things from this article because it's a subject that I know very little about politics in Italy, 
but um, as an advisor to the prime minister, Mark Regev knows a lot, and he said a few things which I want to um, repeat are, uh, for the listeners because it, it has to do with our relationship with Italy in the upcoming months and the years. By the way, during the Second World War, a 7,680 of uh, Italian Jews were killed during the Holocaust. The total number of Jews living in Italy at that time was 44,500. So compared with other Axis and occupied countries, the number of the murdered of Jews is proportionally modest. Now that's a testimony not only to the Allies' advance across the Italian peninsula back in 1943, but also because the fascist party in Italy under Mussolini had a lack of enthusiasm for Hitler's final solution. As a matter of fact, when Mussolini first came to power, there were many prominent members of his party who were Jews. But his attitude changed when he became very tightly associated with Hitler. Now, getting back to what happened now, the this woman Maloney denies any allegiance with fascism, and she prefers to present herself as a conservative populist nationalist, somewhat like the Donald Trump in the United States. Her party does not carry any significant history of anti-Semitism. Moreover. Italian hard rightists are not new to government. She herself, Maloney, served for more than three years as Minister for Youth in a previous uh, Italian government, and she wasn't alone. The, a a neo-fascist and far-right National Alliance leader named Finney, F-I-N-I, once said Mussolini was the greatest Italian statesman of the 20th century, and that fascism has a tradition of honesty, correctness, and good government. Now, this guy, Finney, went on to be deputy prime minister, uh, then foreign minister, and president of the Italian parliament. And in these government positions, he visited Israel several times, as was received by Prime Ministers Ariel Sharon and Benjamin Netanyahu. Finney publicly apologized for fascism's treatment of the Jews, and he said, and I quote, Italians bear responsibility for what happened after 1938 when the race laws were promulgated in Italy. He also added that Italians have a historic responsibility which is written in our history, and a responsibility now to take a position and ask forgiveness. Unlike Finney, Maloney, who will be Prime Minister, should be the first representative of the far right to head an Italian government since Mussolini. So while the European Union genuinely worried about her commitment to liberal uh, European values, and NATO is anxious about her approach toward the Russia, according to Mark Regev, the Jewish state has no unique cause for concern. If Israel could work with Finney 
it can certainly work with Maloney. And when detractors condemn Jerusalem for conducting business as usual with illiberal European governments, Israelis could remind those critics that they regularly urge us to embrace Palestinian leaders who are also not also not particularly renowned for their commitment to liberal values. So according to, some, as I said, the former ambassador, the prime minister, we, ha we have nothing to worry about from a right-wing government. And incidentally, uh, just for the record, uh, Italy has uh, Europe's third largest population, the third biggest economy, it's part of the G7 group of uh, leading industrial nations and is a founding member of both the European Union and NATO. So obviously, Israel is going to have to have diplomatic relations with Italy. And the question is, will it become more fascistic, if you will? And according to the expert, Mark Regev, we have nothing to worry about. So, although I generally don't speak about foreign affairs, the fact that a very right-wing government will come into existence in uh, Italy is something that we have to comment on, and the signs are that our relationship should be pretty good. We'll see what happens. Since I just said a few words about essentially foreign affairs, speaking about Italy, I want to say a few words about the United Nations. The United Nations has something called the Human Rights Council. This council is the tip of the iceberg of what needs to be reformed or replaced at the United Nations. The, United, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations is comprised of some of those egregious human rights abusers including Cuba, China, Venezuela, and Pakistan, among others. The Biden administration gave the Human Rights Council legitimacy by rejoining it last year, something that Trump had pulled out of. And the Biden administration made the somewhat odd argument that unless they are part of the council, they won't be able to influence it. The, unfortunately, uh, there is really no effect change in the actions or the agenda of the Human Rights Council. The, sometimes you have countries that claim they have behind-the-scenes influence, but that, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Membership in a multinational organization primarily comprised of authoritarian and communists and human rights abusers does not advance Israel's interests nor the United States. The, the, um, the, the United States has an odd history with the UN. I don't want to go into it. It's a subject for political scientists like President Barack Obama supported letting international organizations like the UN take the lead and dictate American foreign policy and like the Iran deal. And he actually bypassed his constitutional obligation to submit such a consequential agreement to the Senate for ratification 
as a treaty. Same thing has now happened with Biden, where they're getting involved in international organizations by the president taking action without going to the Congress for approval. So the um, it, there is there's no this is not to say that although the the UN uh, as a, an organization really should be a, <laughs> abolished certainly not democratic but there are parts of the um, UN that do good the the today's UN uh, needs to be reimagined and reformed to address the problems it can work on 26 of the 193 member states are democratic. That, that's, these are the truth. And it may be it's time to, uh, to reinvent the UN because they serve the interests of people who happen to be our enemies. Uh, they're also the enemies of the United States. But uh, it does do some good things. Uh, they have, uh, for example, um, it's true, the, uh, when the UN was created back in 1945 at the end of the Second World War, its idea was to maintain peace and security, but that was a time when the majority of the member states were democratic. By any analysis, any objective analysis, the United Nations has become impotent in resolving most security issues like genocide. There is genocide in Syria, Cambodia, Rwanda, and other places, and the UN is not doing anything about it. That was the reason the organization was created, was, among other things, to worry about these kinds of things. But then again, you can you can accuse the United States uh, about its being hypocritical about human rights. Right now, the Biden administration is trying to enrich the world's leading terrorist state, Iran, and it's also the human rights abuser. They want to give it a trillion dollars in sanctions relief while they are ruthlessly suppressing a domestic uprising for freedom right now. Real, real politics in a world of authoritarians sometimes force people to compromise values to advance their interests. But funding the Islamic Republic of Iran, which for, which for more than 40 years has been an, really an enemy of the United States, calling for the destruction of the United States, and of course for the destruction of Israel, that's, you have to rethink what relationship with that kind of uh, country. For example, the uh, we should end the financial support of the UN uh, Relief and Works, UNRWA, because it's defining descendants of Palestinian refugees as refugees. They're already in the sixth and seventh generation, but the UN considers these Palestinians refugees. The, uh, the, 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 there is a separate UN 
agency, UNRW Day for the Palestinians, but also there is something called the UNHCR, which takes care of all the other refugees in the world. The mission of the UNHCR is to resettle refugees in the third countries where they have found sanctuary and does not give refugee status in perpetuity as UNWRA does. The Palestinians are still considered refugees of 1948. So the UN is using the definition of Palestinian refugees and to undermine Israel's right to exist in secure borders. So the American tax dollars are going into this bloated organization, which is anything but democratic. And so uh, the the it's uh, the only four. As I said, only fourteen percent of UN members are fully democratic, and there are those who say that the the mission of the UN should be changed. I think the chances of that happening are pretty slim. And the UN is an organization which is pretty, uh, pretty. Uh, not, I'm looking for the right word. They're they're not very happy about the existence of Israel. So uh, we have to keep a keen eye and even influence the United States if we can about supporting some of these UN organizations. Trump did away with support. Biden has returned it. And that is not good. So although um, I'm certainly not an expert on the UN, you can tell in the history of particularly since the Palestinian refugee problem began that the UN is hostile to Israel. And that is the fact. I want to switch gears now and say a few words about something totally different. The two-state solution. Our Prime Minister Lapid supported a two-state solution, made a declaration to that effect in the UN two weeks ago. Now, there is no chance of implementing a two-state solution, so why support it? It may have some advantages, but it's also dangerous. The idea of a two-state solution was created by Shimon Peres as part of the Oslo Accords, which officially recognized the PLO as the sole representative of the Palestinian people, giving it the exclusive right to determine what would happen. The Oslo Accords, however, did not do not refer to a two-state solution. That was part of a secret agreement, apparently, with made with Yasser Arafat. We don't know what they are. This, is, this has led to much confusion in our current un- misunderstanding of a two-state solution, what it means. The peace process is based on a false assumption that Arafat had changed and the PLO would abandon terrorism. And although Arafat denied what he agreed to in the Oslo Accords, people continued to support him. Israeli leaders continued to support him. Uh, Skepticism was buried under enthusiasm for the myth of the peace process and the idea that Arafat was our partner, who was a lie. Under Paris and his successors, the two-state solution was accepted by some Israeli leaders. It was never discussed nor approved by the Knesset. They, uh, they talked about something that the Knesset did not approve of. 
The two-stage solution was the basis for Israel's withdrawal from the Gaza Strip and from Jewish communities in Samaria, the disengagement, and other things. Support for the two-stage solution was expressed by many countries, which is, explains why Israeli leaders didn't want to oppose it. It's an agenda to minimize and restrict settlements, including further withdrawals from areas of Judea and Samaria. The so-called two-state solution is there is, is there is nothing about it that makes any sense, and it's not going to happen. The uh, by supporting the two-state solution officially, Israel's interests are are served because they shield Israel from criticism by the international community, which which, which says we should end the occupation, all kind of stuff like that. Support for a two-state solution. Um, it works to um, keep Israel from annexing, annexing Judea, and, Judea and Samaria. So the support for a two-state solution is part of the psychological warfare to get, to get Israelis to accept the idea that Palestinians are a people, deserve a state, and Israel must make more concessions for peace. It supports the narrative made by the Palestinians that Israel is illegally occupying, occupying Palestinian territory. Promoting a two-state solution, the only way of solving the conflict, ignores other alternatives like a multi-state solution, a regional approach based on Jordanian option, and so forth. Ironically, supporting a two-state solution undermines Israel's struggle against terrorism. By refusing to hold, uh, for holding the PLO accountable, legitimizing Palestinian resistance, and so forth, the two-state solution is a bluff, and we have to keep repeating that. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I have a very good friend and former neighbor by the name of Barry Newman. And Barry, who's a uh, technical uh, com- communicator, also knows how to write very well. Very good at literary uh, accomplishments. And uh, he's not formally a writer, but as, as I said, he has a very light touch on describing things. And he wrote something about the what he calls the removing the bitterness of Cheshvan. We are now in the month of Cheshvan. We're getting into it this week. And uh, I want to share with the listeners something he wrote because I think it's really beautiful. Uh, The second month of the Hebrew calendar is Cheshvan, which follows the month of Tishrei, during which the traditional Jewish New Year and all the associated holidays like Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Shmini Atzeret, they all take place. However, the second month of the Jewish year is called uh, Cheshvan, but it's known as Mar Cheshvan, which is a not very flattering designation. Mar means bitter, because Cheshvan includes no holidays or any special days of celebration or any observances or commemorations. So it has been given the name Mar, meaning uh, bitter, and it's always said that way. People refer to the month very easily as Mar Cheshbon, bitter Cheshbon. 
So it's a sense of bitterness and remorse for being the only month of the Jewish year without some sort of unique notation or some sort of unique feature. Now, my friend Barry Newman writes that this is something that has troubled me from the time I moved to Israel and adapted myself to the changes between the schedule of prayers established in Israel and those in the diaspora. And Barry wrote this, and I share his feelings. It's just a different set of holidays almost. Each year, as we start the month of Cheshvan, the, uh, you wonder why they overlook the fact that someone decided that this is one of the most, it's really one of the most important months of the year, right after the new year, that it's going to carry the name bitter. No other month does that. And my friend Barry says the mar bitter might very well have been erroneously applied. Now, for example, on the seventh day of that month, the annual heavenly request for rain commences. Now, it's interesting, in a diaspora, you don't wait to add the prayer for rain in what's called the Shemona Ezra, the primary prayer. You don't add the prayer for rain until December 4th or December 5th but we do it in the beginning of the month of Cheshbon. Now, and uh, it's interesting, we, we don't really want rain so fast. We ask for the sake of our ancestors that a bountiful rainfall be granted to Israel during the upcoming season and remind ourselves that the winds and rains of winter are neither arbitrary nor coincidental. Rather, we believe that they are in the hands of God, who is waiting patiently for everybody to safely arrive home for their holiday pilgrimage before getting the rains underway. In other words, in the time of the temple, people came to Jerusalem, the three major festivals, one of which is Sukkot, which we just finished, and we don't ask for rain for until uh, two weeks have elapsed because we're essentially asking God to hold off the rain until everybody gets home from Jerusalem. And that's the reason. So it's an annual prayer for rain, and they're included. The real prayer for rain is mentioned in the services of Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, which was a week and a half ago. We don't expect or actually request rain on that day. We only ask that for the sake of our ancestors, a bountiful rainfall be granted to Israel during the upcoming season and remind ourselves that the winds and rains of winter are neither arbitrary nor coincidental. They are rather in the hands of God who is waiting patiently for everybody to arrive safely at home from their holiday pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, considering the important contribution of rain that it makes to the well-being of this country, keep in mind that Israel has no natural resources of water. In modern times, the Israeli engineering has done a tremendous job of bringing water from the area 
and making it in a useful. Years ago, you depended simply on the water. They didn't have large reservoirs. You depended on the rain and only on the rain. Now we have ways of saving up the water over the winter and transporting it around the country. So rain and water is important to this country. So a cursory review of the Hebrew calendar provides additional support for use, not using the word mar. The word mar, bitter, was added during the Babylonian exile, and yet we see no similarly denigrating designation to the other months of the year. For, for example, uh, ER, uh, granted, does have distinguishing being the month in which Israel's independence was declared, but that's only recently. That only happened 75 years ago. So, also, uh, there is no major uh, 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 holiday in uh, Cheshvan. The problem may be the water here is too greatly taken for granted. Despite regular reports on the water level of the Canaret, we fail to behave cautiously or seem overly concerned that water in Israel is anything but unlimited. Throughout much of the world, there are majestic flowing rivers from which to draw water and local reservoirs. But here, we rely primarily on rainfall. It should therefore come as no surprise that Israel has become one of the most advanced nations in the area of water management and is an example how water can be effectively recycled for use in agriculture and industry. Water, which is a very precious commodity in Israel, the, the government and the, the engineers of Israel have managed to take a country that was dependent only on rain to now have water resources all year round. From we depend on what we blessed from blessed with from late fall to early spring. From Passover until Simchat Torah, it's a period of about six months, nary a drop of rain falls. It would be foolhardy indeed to regard as nonsense a scenario in which the day will come when out of the forces from the kitchen sinks will come nothing but a puff of air and a dribble of that precious liquid. So we un- we cannot underestimate or understate our dependence on rain or forget the difficulties resulting from the periodic droughts that we experience. So on the 7th of Cheshvan, when we ask for rain, it's indeed a critical date for us here in Israel. So the uh, you don't we don't change the customs easily that have been particularly part of religion for many years. Uh, referring to the second month of the Jewish calendar now, Cheshvan as Mar Cheshvan, bitter Cheshvan has always been part of our upbringing. But what is true in the United States is not necessarily the same for Israel. And those of us who have come from other countries and now live in Israel have adjusted ourselves accordingly. 
There are, by the way, times when Israel and the rest of the world are not in sync regarding prayer structure. So the fact that Cheshvan may have some special significance here in Israel, but not elsewhere in the world, doesn't bother us. The people in Australia who have the opposite seasons, in their prayer, they include the same things we do because they are essentially praying for Israel. So the co close association between water and life needs no explanation or clarification. We have but one natural reservoir, which is the Kinneret, and it is critical that it be continually replenished by seasonal rainfall that lasts approximately six months. Also, there is water draining into the Kinneret from other little lakes some of which are way up on the Syrian border. It would not be unreasonable to assume that this property was specifically designed by God during the period of creation, making Israel truly dependent on divine benevolence in a very practical way. In other words, my friend Barry Newman is simply saying that God arranged for the the weather, the climate in Israel to be such that we have to turn to God for assistance. When you live in Sweden or Norway or in Europe, you don't have to pray for rain. You don't have to worry about water. We have to de depend on divine benevolence. And I think that's an important thing and how the, uh, the authorities arranged our prayers the least we can do is to recognize the importance of the rain that's generous by providing a, a, our God and ask for it, not cheapen the gratitude for his generosity by uh, regarding as inconsequential the month in which we begin our rest request for the special gift of rain. So, uh, as my friend Barry says, maybe we should stop prefixing the month of the Hebrew of the Cheshvan with the word Mar, bitter. It's actually not a bitter month. It's a month when we really pray for the things that are important to the land. And one of the things, if not the thing, which is most important to the land of Israel is water. So during the month of Cheshvan, right after the holidays, we asked God to provide water, and it's really important, even Jews live outside of Israel, on the other side of the world, like I mentioned in Australia, they pray for water in Israel. So that, I think, is one of the ways that really brings us together as a people, having our prayers aimed in the same direction, if you will. We pray for the things that are important to the land of Israel, no matter where we live. So, uh, removing the bitterness of the month of Cheshvan is really a nice idea. And as I said, my friend Barry Newman pointed it out, and I tried to pass along his ideas to the listeners. So, the month of Cheshvan, which we're now entering, can also be quite sweet and not necessarily bitter. And now to change the subject, 
but uh, keep the calendar in mind. The high holy days have passed, and the Israeli public has become accustomed to a strange new normal. There are terrorist attacks followed uh, by all kinds of uh, unpleasant things because of what the Arabs are doing. And um, the news is filled with descriptions of violent Arabs rioting in Judea, Samaria, and in particular in Jerusalem. A day that ends without a body count is considered almost a miracle, something that doesn't always happen. Tragically, over the course of the high holidays, two more names were added to the dreaded role of the fallen, killed by terrorists. There were uh, 24 other victims of terrorism in the year 2022. For those who remember the bad days of the so-called Oslo peace process, the, the dynamics of this wave of terrorism and the equally dreaded reactions ra ra ranging from uh, nothing new to who is today's victim are becoming very familiar, unfortunately. Younger people remember the madness of the 2000s, but it's happened all over since I've lived here. The feeling is more than just a gut reaction, but according to the Israeli Security Agency data, September was marked by 254 terrorist attacks, two fatalities, and 14 injured. Those joined the tally of 3,000 702 documented terrorist attacks in Judea and Samaria in the first half of 2022. This year, this has been reported by a group called Hatzala Yosh, the first responder unit that documents every attempted murder. In English, it's called the Rescuers Without Borders. This month, uh, there is already uh, 20 shooting attacks during the intermediary days of Sukkot alone and dozens of stone-throwing attacks every single day. The, uh, it's really a difficult situation. There's no two ways about it. When you go to synagogue on the holiday and you realize the reason you can sit there comfortably is because there are literally thousands of of soldiers and members of the border guard and police who are doing their job while you are celebrating the holiday is something that has to be recognized. Beside terrorism, the Arabs are doing land grabs. Both terrorism and land grabs aim to banish us from our homeland and to establish a Palestinian state in our place. The two phenomena differ only in practice, but stones used in illegal construction aren't thrown with intent to kill. They're used to build layer upon layer of facts on the ground to build a Palestinian state, and they are building in what's called Area C, which according to the Oslo Agreements was supposed to be only for Jewish building. So there is a attempt uh, to uh, 
at of the Arab illegal, illegal construction, and with the Israeli government is not doing enough about it. The present government has made a conscious decision, apparently, to embrace supporters of terrorism, to harm Jewish settlement and Jewish enterprise by having demolition of a hilltop outpost on a daily basis, and that some are actively, some members of Knesset and their parties are actively promoting a Palestinian state. Uh, the ground is sown and the fruits are ripening. The sharp rise in terrorism goes hand in hand with the sharp increase in illegal construction and illegal land grabs by Arabs in the area that was designated for Jewish settlement. So there is an organization in Israel called Regavim that's been documenting illegal Arab construction in Area C for years, warning of the impending Palestinian Authority annexation of Judea and Samaria. And in recent months, when complaints to the civil administration about illegal construction began to pile up, we began to suspect something new is in the air. Doing a full mapping survey of the territory, it turns out the rate of illegal Palestinian construction in Area C nearly doubled in the past year. This is a major problem. Before our very eyes, the battle for Area C of Judea and Samaria which is a microcosm of the battle for the state of Israel as a whole, have shifted from cement mixers and olive saplings to live fire. Beside building, there's an increase in terrorism. So the uh, many of these uh, terrorist acts were launched from illegal structures. So we are as in, we are in an emergency now. And I wanted to bring that to the attention of the listeners. It's not pleasant, but the fact that facts must be known. Thanks again for listening. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. 
I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Da from Maladimim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 